0: All right. Well, as you'll notice, there are some papers on your table. Um, there is a handout that I'm going to be working through tonight, and then some, just a sheet that lists the reference scripture verses. I just want you to kind of ignore this. I want you to listen. These are put there for you to just look at afterward, to spend in your free time, to just kind of marinate in, but I don't want you to fuss over how many scripture verses there are. Just listen and hear what God has to say to you. So um, I know Tammy started off with some interesting facts. I thought it was interesting how much sugar and the favorite snack, but I'm going to give you some, a little more sobering facts. I'm going to start off with these. Obesity is one of the fastest growing health risks in America. It is one of the major causes of heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, sleeping disorders, breathing problems, osteoarthritis, gallbladder disease, fatty liver disease, and more. That's a lot, isn't it? Obesity is also one of the top three risk factors for cancer. Overeating is possibly the most frequently overlooked sin in the church. It is. It's one of the most frequently overlooked sin. And while the church might be quick to condemn other sins related to a lack of discipline or to um, a lack of personal self-control, Overeating is an issue that no one really wants to talk about, is it? You know, I think part of the reason for this is that eating is something that we all have to do. It's not something you can just stop doing, right? So that's part of the reason. And, and another reason for our reluctance is that we could wrongly judge or offend someone, couldn't we? And that's a legitimate concern but I would suspect that we're also reluctant because of the fact that the finger would point back at ourselves, right? That's a possibility too. It is a grace that God has created food to have so many wonderful tastes and flavors and smells. He made it so that we could enjoy it, didn't he? He could have made everything taste like liver or oatmeal, but he didn't. The problem comes when we allow our food desires to master us or to harm our our health or to violate God's word. It is then that food becomes a sin issue. Jerry Bridges wrote in his book, The Pursuit of God, that 20th century Christians, especially those in the Western world, have generally been found wanting in the area of holiness of the body. Gluttony and laziness, for example, were always regarded by the earlier Christians as sin. Today, we may view these as weaknesses of the will, but certainly not sin. We even joke about our overeating and other indulgences instead of crying out to God, he said, in confession and repentance. The first time I picked up this little book, it's called I'm a Slave to Food, and the church has many of these little booklets around. But I was at a biblical counseling conference um, in Lafayette, Indiana, in April of 19 or 2018. And this book is written by a biblical counselor named um, Shannon K. McCoy, and it is a product of her own lifelong battle with overeating, her struggle with food, And I will tell you tonight that I share her struggle. She is passionate for the church to be set free from this common bondage. And she is also, and I'm going to quote her, concerned about the effectiveness of the Christian church. Excessive overeating, which is called gluttony in the Bible, cannot be considered a subtle, respectable, or silent sin. It is hindering the spiritual growth and effectiveness of many Christians. I also share that concern. So I'm the brave volunteer who said I would talk on this topic tonight. And I'll tell you, it has been uh, something to try to put this together. So um, I'm going to be very candid with you, and I hope that um, what I have to say will really encourage your hearts. So there are words in the Bible that kind of make me wince, and gluttony is one of them. I just, I think it's an ugly word. It sounds harsh. It sounds sort of extreme or unkind. And I've just never liked that word. I mean, gluttony. So I've never liked it, but the Bible doesn't shrink back from, from using it. And so neither should we. So we will use that word tonight. Gluttony simply means to habitually eat more than your body requires. Just means to eat more than your body requires. It is defined as intemperate eating, and it is often characterized by a preoccupation with food. In the booklet, the author poses several questions that can help us evaluate our own hearts in this regard. So I think I put the questions on your handout, and I'll just read through them. Do you think about food much of the day? Do these thoughts harass you and compel your behavior? Do you often feel as though you are unable to say no despite your best intentions? Do you make strides one day only to be defeated the next? Have you felt desperate, discouraged, or ashamed? I think we can all agree that answering yes to any of these questions is a good indicator that we are enslaved. And enslavement is a bad thing. Second Peter 2.19 says, by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. Knowing this, we can still be reluctant to admit our own bondage because it's an area that most of us find very personal and somewhat embarrassing. And it is something we're not sure we want to be held accountable for because we kind of like. Well, we like our sin of, of overindulgence. So Shannon also recognized that in her little booklet. And um, she presented eight characteristics that she hoped would help us evaluate if we are actually prone to these issues, these food-related sins. So these two are listed on your sheet. Number one, you have repeatedly tried to stop. You have tried every diet known to man but have failed to stop habitually overeating. Number two. You blame others or circumstance for your failure. You might blame the influences of your childhood. You were maybe forced to clean your plate every evening. Maybe your family had a propensity to eat large meals. Maybe there was a lack of modeling. Right now, I want to blame Thanksgiving and Christmas, 7,000 calories in a day. Oh, my goodness. Well, perhaps you even blame your sin on God because he will not supernaturally remove your cravings. Number three, you refuse to accept that unrighteous eating is actually sin. You don't want to believe it because you might have to do something about it. You would rather believe worldly lies like your eating issues are really caused by low self-esteem or maybe you prefer to think of it as an addiction. Number four, you convince yourself that you are not enslaved and can stop at any time despite evidence to the contrary. I'm going to really hit on this one in a bit. Number five, you view the short-term pleasure as worth. The long-term harm. You see your body weight increasing. You feel your clothes getting tighter. You generally feel crummy or bloated. You have trouble sleeping and your joints ache. Your lab work is not good. You dislike the way you look. Maybe it's starting to make you feel less social. You withdraw. But it's not really worth giving up that momentary pleasure that you receive. Number six, when food controls you, you will hide your outward behavior by doing it in secret or out of sight. For example, if you do not want your husband or your friend or your roommate to see or know what you are eating, you will seek to do it in private. Have you ever destroyed evidence even bought a replacement so that your indulgent behavior would not be noticed? Have you hidden food for yourself to secretly be enjoyed later? Have you waited to be alone with that food that you have been craving all day? Number seven, these are pretty penetrating questions, aren't they? You minimize how unrighteous eating habits damage your Christian testimony. Reasoning that what I do and how I eat really doesn't impact other people. It's a personal issue, and it has no bearing on my Christian walk or on my witness or on my ability to disciple others. Number eight, you resist what God's word has to say on the subject. Your conscience may be accusing you. You know that your behavior does not reflect godliness or self-control, You know that you're not making good choices, but you see it as a small thing that is not really very important to God. Well, perhaps one or two or maybe all of these eight apply to you. So now what? Right? That's why you're here. Well, if all I do tonight is convey to you God's perspective on the topic and encourage you to start to think rightly on this issue, then I will have accomplished my goal for the evening. You know, I always find it helpful when the person who is trying to give me advice actually knows of what they speak, that they honestly do understand what I am facing. Weight has always been a challenge for me. I eat when I'm happy. I eat when I'm sad. I eat when I'm bored. I eat when I'm lonely. There's no particular time that I eat or don't eat. My dad was fond of embarrassing me by telling people that I weighed 90 pounds in kindergarten. Yes, I'm sure that was an exaggeration of sorts, but it was very hurtful nonetheless. Growing up, I was teased by neighbors and classmates, and I learned to sit at a table with the underdogs. I starved myself freshman year of high school and I lost so much weight that my grandmother did not recognize me. I walked in one day and she said, who is that? I had such a fear of getting fat that I sank to bulimia in college. I tried every fad diet, every gym membership, every ounce of willpower, every method of positive thinking with no permanent results, only temporary results. I can tell you the calorie content of just about any food just by looking at it. And yet my weight continued to yo-yo and climb, and it was always on my mind. I never really thought about turning to God for answers until I became a Christian in 1989. And at that time, I begged and I pleaded God many times to remove my cravings and extinguish this desire to overeat. I wanted him to take away my need to think about food at all. Well, he didn't. On the contrary, he sent me another very large challenge in the form of celiac disease in 1994, and now I have to think about food all the time. I have to be aware of every single ingredient the opposite of what I asked for. So why would God answer my plea in such a way? Was not my plea to be free of these cravings a righteous one? I thought so. Well, I want to show you a graph, and Jamie's going to put it up here on the board. Okay, this is a graph. Some of you might recognize it. It might be familiar to you. But it is a graph produced by the tracking mechanism in my LoseIt.com app. Yeah. It documents a portion of my weight battle from April 2011 to December 2020. And as I already mentioned, my battle goes all the way back to preschool. For the umpteenth time in my life, I have lost more than 20 pounds. And this last time... I managed to shave off 43. 43. I counted calories, I weighed, I measured, I logged daily, and I stuck to the rules. I was committed to my goal, and I know that I have willpower, and I know how to diet. For those of you who were here at the October Tea, the message was, help, I want to what? change. Help I want to change. And one of the key points that I gave was we do what we do because we want what we want. We get something out of it, don't we? And what we want at any given point changes depending upon our circumstance. Last January, up there, I felt crummy. I felt much too heavy. I didn't like the way I looked. I became very motivated again, again, again. But by August, I felt good. I felt close to my goal weight. I got positive comments. And by August 2020, 2022, I'm sorry, I was no longer desperate. Okay, I'm cruising now, right? My motivation weakened and my old desires pressed back in. And what motivated me now was the freedom to eat what I want. Okay, you see how that changed? So I gave myself permission to take a holiday from my own rules. And then one holiday led to another and another and another, right? And I want you to take a look at the tail end of the graph here what's happening? Right. I started to regain that weight. I put back on 10 pounds and 10 pounds that I had lost. And I just thought, no, not again, not again. Sin does not take a holiday and sins of the flesh are never satisfied by the idea of just one more. Genesis 4-7 says, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to overcome you, but you must master it. Sin deceives you into thinking or enticing you to do things that no reasonable person would ever do. And I would ask you, does this chart look like a reasonable person? Not to me, it doesn't. It has taken me a long time to admit that I am a slave to food. I've always suspected it, but I can see it very clearly now. And you know, God has been gracious. He really has. And he has been faithful to not spare me the consequence of my overeating. He wants to show me my sinful intemperance, my sinful lack of self-control, so that I will repent of it and come to him for the answers that I need. He's the solution. My motivation to lose weight was re- driven by feeling desperate and determined. And when that changed, my motivation changed. And I simply moved on to filling my next fleshly desire. Another point from October, um, October's message, Help, I Want to Change, is that fleshly desires are fickle, right? You remember that? They're fickle. They change constantly. And if we really want to change, we need to anchor our desires in something that does not change. We have to anchor our desires in pleasing God. For the Christian, the desire to please God should be the absolute bedrock of our decision-making process, shouldn't it? God does not change, and our desire to please him should not change. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. And what will he do? He will give you the desires of your heart. And when your desires align with his desires, he will be happy to answer your prayer for freedom. Now, if your chart looks something like mine, it is evidence that you too might have been finding your delight in the wrong places. God is not going to be so unloving as to condone our wrong desires. He just won't. James 4.3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures, right, on your own desires. Scripture commands us, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whatever you eat or whatever you do, excuse me, do all for the glory of God. All to the glory of God. Eat, drink, whatever. Whatever Christian liberty is set before us, even the most common behavior choice like eating, we are commanded to do it to his glory. You won't find height and weight charts in the Bible. The Bible mentions no ideals in terms of body shape. But you will find that the Bible has an awful lot to say on temperance and self-control, which are fruits of walking by the Spirit. In Scripture, you will find that God commands that we be good stewards of our body and our health. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20, or do you not know, and this is, I think, on your handout, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. There's that command again. Scripture also warns against idolatry, which is desiring and pursuing something more than pleasing God. Colossians three five says, Therefore put to death your in your members which are on earth fornication, uncleanness, Passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Overeating really is greedy eating, isn't it? Something more than you need. Scripture also warns that those who cling to worthless idols forsake God's love. That's a scary one. They forsake the intimacy they could enjoy with him, and that's found in Jonah 2, verse 8. Scripture also prohibits legalism telling us that these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Gluttony is condemned. There's that word. Proverbs 23.2 exhorts us, put a knife to your throat if you are prone to gluttony. Proverbs 28.7, he who keeps the law is a discerning son, but he who is a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. Now, I want to be very, very careful to point out tonight that being overweight is not synonymous with gluttony. It is not. That would be very much of an oversimplification of some very complex medical issues. There are medications, there are conditions that lead to weight gain, and there are situations that prevent proper exercise. i face some of those myself. People facing these circumstances have to exert so much greater effort than the average person to get their weight under control. In some cases, an ideal or goal weight isn't even possible. We understand that. And to them I say, and I hope we would all say, we are in your corner to cheer you on to be in the best condition you can be for you. It's my hope that we would love you enough to encourage you. And when you grow weary in well-doing, that we would cheer you on to godliness. You're never alone in your struggle, by the way. Father, God is also called El Roy. Anybody know what El Roy means? He's the God who sees. He hears and he sees If my own autoimmune issues and food sensitivities and weaknesses have taught me anything, it's that I cannot eat like other people do. I cannot expect the same results as other people. But I can always, always glorify God in the doing. I can. I have found these three little words in John 21, verse 22, most helpful in my struggle. There was a time when the Apostle Peter was looking around and started to feel a little bit jealous. And he thought perhaps that John was being favored. Jesus looked him square in the eye and he said, What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. I can't worry about how easy or not easy it is for someone else. My husband can skip two meals and lose five pounds. Ain't fair. It's just the way it is. I can't kick against the fences that God has put in my life, right? That would be unprofitable. I need to rest in the truth that He has designed the perfect life for me. With all the challenges that are necessary to conform me to godliness, and we all need to remember that our time down here on earth is simply training ground to fit us for heaven. Pastor Kirk mentioned that on Sunday. It's to fit us for heaven. You know, I remember feeling particularly low at one point in my struggle. Um, and we had spent some time with another couple. And the wife is one of those rare, I think they call them unicorn people, one of those rare people that can eat anything, anytime, anywhere, she orders the most fatty prime rib and dips it in butter. She, I mean, I'm like aghast. She dips it in butter. She orders a baked potato fully loaded, and she eats it all, and she's skinny. And I said to her husband, I mean, I'm like watching this, and I'm thinking, oh, I said to her husband, who is a very sweet Christian man, I said, I don't get it. I said, she is just, she's willowy and thin, and she can put on anything. She looks fabulous. I said, I cannot believe the way she eats, and she looks so good. And I will never forget what he said to me. He looked at me, and he said, Jerry, she might be thin. She might not have a struggle with food but she has other problems. (laughs) He said she has other problems and she has other battles that she has to wage. Well, Jesus, through this very sweet man, looked me square in the eye and said, what is it to you? You follow me. All right. If there are no extenuating circumstances, being enslaved to food is usually an outward sign of a life out of balance. If you're not enslaved to food, you most likely have other problems. And all the principles that I share here tonight will apply to you, so you are not off the hook. Jesus taught us to seek balance between the physical and the spiritual. Matthew 4.4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I want to take you to a couple of passages that I think are very instructive, and you're probably going to be surprised at the first one. It's Matthew twelve forty three through 45. Here we see Jesus instructing unbelievers on the problem of moral compliance without spiritual renewal. He said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I know I will return to the house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Jesus was giving us a physical picture of a spiritual reality. John MacArthur says the problem is that the evil spirits found the house empty. This is a description of someone who attempts moral reform without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This kind of reform is never effective and eventually reverts back to the pre-reform behavior, right? Cleaning up the outside without doing the necessary heart work for a Christian is functional unbelief. That's what it is. You're saved, but you're acting like an unbeliever when you do this. It is choosing to operate apart from God and his word and his spirit. In fact, Matthew twenty-three twenty-five says, and he's talking to the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He called them hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. I'm not implying that's what we are. I'm just saying we don't want to look like that, right? that characterizes someone who is not walking by the Spirit. Physical reform without heart reform is never going to result in the freedom that we want from enslaving habits, never. Merely controlling your appetite temporarily without addressing the sin behind the sin will simply leave a void ready to be filled with the next enslaving desire. A lack of self-control is, in fact, a spiritual problem, and it requires a spiritual solution. Galatians five sixteen through 18 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the Spirit is against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. In order to keep you from what? From doing what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The Holy Spirit resides in every believer, and he provides the empowerment to live in a way that pleases God. Walking by the Spirit implies a habitual lifestyle, and walking also implies progress. When you choose to make godliness your goal, The Spirit will bring to mind the truths that you have learned, and he will empower you to say no to your sinful desires. The more we do this, the more freedom we will gain and the more um, spiritual fruit we will see in our lives. Galatians 5.22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It's the next one self-control against such things. There is no law. These qualities that I just read to you, including self-control, they are not produced by any kind of a law. Romans 8, three tells us that the law was powerless to defeat sin in our lives and make us righteous. God provided a way of deliverance by sending his son Listen to this. Laws do not produce righteous behavior. They only control bad behavior. Laws don't produce righteous behavior. They only control bad behavior. Did you ever notice that when you set up some diet laws, like um, thou shalt not eat carbs, okay, thou shalt not eat chocolate, Thou shalt not eat more than 1,200 calories in a day. Do you notice that that becomes all that you think about? The minute I limit carbs, I want something sweet, right? The minute I swear off a chocolate, that's the exact thing I think about and crave all day long. Do you know Scripture actually tells us that this is what will happen? Because the law awakens our sin desires, The minute we're told no, it provokes rebellion in our heart. Our desires are now focused on the very thing we are trying to avoid. This was a revelation for me. I mean, I, I'm like, I never thought of it that way. Listen to Romans seven verses seven and eight. I would not have known sin except through the law for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. And this is the interesting part. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all kinds of evil desires. Laws provoke our natures, right? Our sin natures and evil desires well well up in us. And we focus on the restriction rather than on the freedom that we have. Does that make sense? We're focusing on the restriction rather than the freedom we have to say no. Christian counselor Ed Welch said this, here is a rule that has no exceptions. He's a big guy in Christian counseling realm, by the way. When you look to be rescued by anything or anyone in this world, your rescuer will control you. Then your rescuer will become your master and you will need to be rescued again. That makes sense? Galatians 3.3 warns us. It says, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit that you are now being made perfect in your flesh, in your fleshly efforts? Instead, Galatians 5.16, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. When we set up rules and laws and formulas to manage our behavior, we can actually hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is because we're not listening and responding to God's will, but rather we're imposing our own. I want help with following my plan. In essence, we're asking God to empower us to glorify ourselves rather than him. And that is a check that he will not sign. The Spirit delights to lead us, and that is why he was sent. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit, comes, he will lead you into all truth. He intercedes for us. He brings our weaknesses and our frustrations before God, even for needs that we cannot put into. You know, fad diets, a new determination to stick to it, a new set of rules ignore the spiritual, the heart problem behind the issue. Programs appeal to the flesh because they give us the illusion of self-control, but they only enslave us to the program. Second Corinthians 10:3 and four says, "Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Food issues are almost always strongholds. Our weapons for pulling them down are not found in worldly solutions. They are mighty in God and they are be taken up through obedient thinking. Now, I want to say this as a disclaimer. If you have a plan put in place by your doctor, I am not suggesting that you trash it. Not at all. James 4.17 says, Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Okay? Rather, you need to follow that plan to the glory of God, asking the Holy Spirit to help you and empower you to do what is best for your body. So now I'm going to go back over the eight characteristics of enslavement, and I want to apply some fighter verses, okay? have you, Your kids know fighter verses, right? Okay, so there's virtually hundreds <laughs> of verses that I could list for you, and I have supplied a few here. Um, those are the ones that are noted right under each number. Um But I would suggest that you find the fighter verses that grip your heart. Those are the ones that you can bring to mind when you're in the crunch and you need to think on it, right? Um, So I would suggest that, you know, here's a few, but you look for some on your own too. So number one, it's true. Okay, you've come to the conclusion. You have repeatedly tried to stop. What you have been doing is not working. You have not been thinking in terms of righteousness and pleasing God. And you understand that the system of laws that you have been imposing on yourself, like me, they only have the appearance of wisdom, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That's Colossians 2.2. 2. They only appear to be wise. They're no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You have to change how you are running this race, right? First Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to um, obtain a perishable crown but we for an imperishable crown. does not that help to bring a fighter verse alongside of it? Number two, you have blamed others for your circumstance or your failure. You accept the fact that you alone are responsible for your choices. Hebrews 12:16 through 18, let there be no immoral godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he desired to inherit a blessing, he was rejected. Why? Because he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. I begged God. I had tears. It wasn't the right way to go about it. I needed to recognize the sin and repent. Confess, repent, moving forward, knowing that God is for you. He is for you, for your freedom. Romans 8.37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8.1, when you get discouraged, therefore there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Number three, you have denied that your eating habits are sinful. But now you're going to honestly evaluate your behavior and agree with God and call it what it is. 1 John 5.17, all unrighteousness is sin. 1 John 3.4, disobedience is sin. Proverbs 24.9, the devising of folly is sin. Romans 14.23, whatever is not from faith sin. And I already mentioned this one, James 4:17. Therefore, to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. We do not take our food issues seriously. And because we don't take them seriously, we think God doesn't take them seriously. But you know what? There's no such thing as a respectable sin, is there? I mean, there's a book called Respectable Sins, but it, actually points out there aren't any. But there's no such thing as a respectable sin. All unrighteousness is sin. The church, by the way, is guilty of giving kind of a wink and a nod, aren't they, to um, destructive eating habits? Probably for the reasons I gave you right in the very beginning. It's a hard thing to discuss. But honestly, it is time that we stop coaxing our diabetic friend to have a, sh- a sugary treat. Or a person trying to achieve a healthy, to go ahead and have an extra helping. It's time we stop doing that. It's time we support their efforts, encourage them, and their obedient resolve to honor God in their eating. That's what we want to see for them, right? Success in that area. Now, don't hear me saying that you can never indulge. That's not what I'm saying. That would be legalism, and that would not be wisdom at all. And there are times when the higher good is accepting the love offering of another person. There was a book a long time ago. I think it was called "Food When Food is Love. I mean, people associate that, right? You really care for someone, so you give them something really tasty. If we habitually eat righteously, that occasional indulgence will not be a problem. You know, it's funny, my grandkids, they were, I had a whole bunch of them here just a little bit ago, they always ask for a treat after they eat. They don't always get it, but they always ask for a treat after they eat. And I, they associate it with, well, I ate all my food, so I should get a treat. (laughs) I mean, what are we teaching them? It's kind of funny. So I say, no, you don't get a treat. (laughs) Number four, you were convinced that you're not enslaved and could stop at any time. You were convinced that you were not enslaved and could stop at any time, but now maybe you're starting to question whether or not you actually are enslaved. You've maybe considered your own graph, and it looks a little bit like mine, perhaps, Okay, well it's time to face the facts and the reality is you have not stopped. Jesus wants us to be free and not be a slave to sin. Jesus teaches that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. John 8.34 Enslavement is not God's will for you and it actually insults the gift of God's son. It actually does because Galatians 5.1 says it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Determine to change your mind and your thinking on these things. And this is my all-time favorite fighter verse. It's 1 Corinthians 6.12, and it's also a portion of it is on your prayer cards. It says all things are lawful for me. They are. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. That is not God's will for me. Number five, you have begun to see the short-term pleasure is not worth the long-term harm. It is never worth the harm or the spiritual growth that you are giving up. Proverbs twenty-three twenty 20 through 21 Do not be heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. Reminds me of the the all-meat diet. What was that? I don't know. Pound of bacon and you could still lose weight. That surely isn't God's will for us. Or gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe them with rags. Sin never delivers what it promises. I remember, I can't remember the guy's name who gives the Israel tours. Anyway, he said, sin makes you stupid. (laughs) I thought, oh, okay. But it does, it does. Sin makes you do things no reasonable person would choose to do. Can you think of anything less reasonable than determining to eat healthy at 7 a.m. and by 9 o'clock you've done several cookies? It's like, how, how does that happen? Those desires press in. Or can you think of anything less reasonable than mindlessly eating an entire bag of chips while watching TV? What are we doing? Really? Romans 6.19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in what? Sanctification. Sanctification. Sin always leads to more sin, and choosing to walk in the Spirit will lead to freedom. It always does. Number six, you know you can't continue to entertain your secret eating habits. Hiding your sin will only lead you into deeper bondage, It'll increase your shame. It will steal your joy. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Confession and prayer is essential to your freedom. Confession and prayer is essential to your freedom. I have heard it said that your prayer life is directly correlated to your dependence upon God. Your prayer life is directly correlated to your dependence upon God. Trying to wage a spiritual battle apart from prayer should be unthinkable. Another fighter verse I love, Genesis 4-7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Psalm 5112, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, and renew in me a willing spirit. Number seven, you understand that unrighteous eating habits damage your testimony. And this is, this is one that should really grip the church. Your testimony matters. It does. Christians should never look like the false teachers found in 2 Timothy 3.5, who have a form of godliness but deny its power should never look like that. Your ability to admonish and encourage others in their walk will be significantly undermined if they see you treating sin lightly. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection lest after I have preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. If we make it a habit of walking in the Spirit, the fruit from those choices will become evident to others around you. It will set a good example. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul said, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. We want to be able to say that too, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. Number eight, you no longer want to resist God's word and what it has to say on the subject. You don't. I know you don't. You see the rotten fruit of pride and rebellion, and you recognize that it is folly to go your own way, and you're ready to make a change, and you are willing to trust God to lead you into freedom, and that's good. This is one of another one of my very favorite verses. It's First Thessalonians 2.13. And it says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in those who believe. Therefore, make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Pastor Kirk's favorite verse, right? 2 Corinthians 5.9. Closing up here, Job 23.12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's good advice. Now I'm just going to run through a few practical things we really do need to take into account because we have responsibility here to be well informed. We do. Americans in general have lost sight of nutrition and portion size. There are probably a hundred or a thousand bad choices that you can make for every one good choice. Goodness, you can drive up, only in America. No, actually, it's all over the world now. But you can drive up to a window where someone will hand you a bag full of tasty, calorie-dense junk food that you can sit in your car and eat. That's awful. (laughs) But it's true. We overeat and we obsess about food only because we have the luxury and the curse to do so. That's the only reason that we obsess about food, is we have the luxury and the ability, which is actually a curse, to do so. Food prep used to be an all-day project, plowing and growing and harvesting and grinding and mixing and baking, and people usually burned as many calories, if not more, than what they consumed. Subsistence was their focus. My own dad was a mason and he worked hard every day carrying and laying brick. It was hard work. He never worried about calories or eating. He was skinny until he retired. Then he got fat and he really hated it. So, it, it's different. You know, we've, we really moved into a different place here in our thinking. Dessert, as I said, used to be only for Sunday, only for celebrations, but now, Like I said, my grandkids ask for it after every meal. Do I get a treat? Go away. No, you don't get a treat. (laughs) The disciples ate heads of grain. Remember reading that in scripture? They walked along and they were hungry and they were eating heads of grain. Okay. Jesus feeds the crowd with fish and bread. I don't hear anything about butter and tartar sauce and, you know, deep fried and, you know, where's the sides and the hush puppies fish and bread. (laughs) Food was created by God to provide nutritional support for the body in order to provide energy, to stimulate growth, to provide healing and restoration and maintain your life. And we are so far removed from need that we focus continually on our wants. Remember that commercial where the girl has a dove chocolate? and I mean, she's like, it's it's bad. I mean, how can you just be in ecstasy over this piece of chocolate? Gluttony has always existed, but it is rampant today. It is devastating our society and our culture, and Christians need to decide where they stand on the topic. We have an obligation to cooperate with the Spirit, to fill our mind with God's truth, to inform ourselves of healthy choices, to get our portion sizes right. My husband laments, he goes, he used to eat like four burgers and, you know, he can eat anything he wants. But since we're the age we are now, he complains, I can only eat like two chicken legs and I'm done. Two, <laughs> it's like, oh, finally, no. He's listening out there, so. Anyway, um, we need to get our portion sizes right, and we need to get familiar with the calorie content and nutrition. Now, I'm not saying obsess about this. Don't do that. But you need to be well enough informed that the Holy Spirit can take that information and guide you, just like when you fill your mind with Scripture and he uses that to guide you. We are responsible to operate within the parameters that God has set for us. Not kicking against the goads. We don't want to kick against the goads. You know what goads are? Anybody? Goads are the prods that shepherds use to move you in the right direction. Don't kick against those. They're moving you in the right direction. Don't compare yourselves to others. Jesus is looking squarely at you and saying, Don't worry about them. You follow me. If we do our part, we can trust God to do his part. Titus 2, 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and instructing us, um, I'm sorry, and worldly desires and instructing us to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age. So you know what? This new year, it's only, what, the 10th today? I would encourage you to make just one resolution. If you're into making resolutions, I'm generally not, but I would tell you to make just one. And I have already started mine because of this, you know, this little tail on my graph. I've already started mine and I'm happy to say that I'm already down 5 of the 10 that I had gained back, but I'm doing it a different way. I'm thinking the way God wants me to think about it. I'm not weighing, I'm not measuring I am just paying attention to my body and to the spirit and to um, making the best choice that I can make in the moment so that I honor God in my eating. So I would say that if you're serious, it will be the only resolution that you have to make because it applies to everything else as well. And it's this, whether I eat or whether I drink, Or whatever I do, I will do all to the glory of God. Amen. So thank you and God bless.